0: J.
1: J. Devaney. Oh, yes! Caught offside from a basement in Westchester and an apartment in Brooklyn, Andrew Gunling and J.J. J. Devaney. What's up, brother? Andrew, I
2: got in a fight with a flautist today. I don't even understand how we're in a climate where that can physically happen. So what happened was, at 7 o'clock in New York, everybody bangs their pots and pans they shout they holler uh, out the window to to you know basically acknowledge the amazing work of our frontline healthcare workers who have i mean just literally kept the city from total oblivion and my girlfriend Darcy has a vuvuzela so i blow that out the window and it is loud like it it echoes through the uh through the brooklyn valleys if you will and today, somebody, and I've taken this as a personal insult, from down the street, took out his jazz flute and played right towards the end of my Vuvuzela playing and, and pot banging and then continued for the next two minutes. When everyone else had stopped, you know, we'd done our acknowledgement and we everyone had stopped, he kept going. Who was it, Ron Burgundy? Right. So I decided I wasn't having that. I'd already rolled down the window and put the Vuvuzela away, but taking it as a personal affront, I went out and tried to drown out the noise
1: of his jazz flute. I, like, I, don't, under, I don't understand. What was it about him playing beyond what you have deemed to be the allotted time? What bothered you about this? I'm, I'm the
2: horn guy on my street, Andrew. I'm the horn man of Park
1: Slope, and I won't be usurped by this guy. You know, the sad thing is you're saying this tongue in cheek, but I believe deep down inside you believe this. Like you believe that this thing that happens every night at seven o'clock. Yeah, it's about the healthcare workers and everybody, but it's also kind of about you.
2: It's mostly about them, but quite a large part is about me. Yes, that's correct.
1: (laughs) Oh, that is that is beautiful. That's what the spirit of all this is about. What a show we have coming up for you! Oh, the this season. is
2: this is such a show. I am yeah. so excited.
1: I'm very excited about this too. Uh, so, uh, you know what this week was supposed to have been like? You know what we were supposed to have been sitting down here right now talking about second legs of the Champions League semifinals. Yeah, yeah. Sad, sad. Right. And so it got me thinking. This time last year. The second leg of the Champions League semifinals. I honestly think it's the most fun that I've ever had doing a show uh, was the day that you and I hosted after Liverpool had come back from uh, to beat Barcelona and Tottenham had come back to beat Ajax. Remember when you walked in, the hug we gave each other? Wow, oh. we were both it was the one day where we allowed ourselves to just like have total love for for each other, for our each other's teams, for the situation. And then afterwards, it was like, oh, yeah, now we're going to play each other. But for that day, that, that second leg day, it was just so much fun. And the man who was on the call of the tottenham Ajax Champions League semifinal, also before that, he was on Tottenham-Manchester City, was Guy uh, Mowbray, uh, who was, I said to you at the time, he was spectacular. Like, I, I kind of sometimes classify announcers – in the context of big moments into three groups, there are those who detract, who actually take away from the moment. There are those who just blend in to it, which is fine. And there are those who I actually believe as an announcer help add to it. Like, you know, however big the miracle on ice was like the U S beating the USSR in the 1980 Olympics, that on its own was huge. And Al Michaels call even added another layer to the bigness of the moment. I actually believe Guy Mowbray was that good. Uh, in both the Tottenham Man City second leg and in the Tottenham Ajax. when I go back and rewatch those highlights, as I often do, uh, he I get goosebumps all over again from his call. So I'm so excited to talk to him today. We're going to have him on for a long discussion, not just about that. He's been on the call. He's a legend. He's been on the calls of England World Cups, most recently against Colombia, that epic game, uh, BBC match of the day. Uh, he's you know primarily he can talk everything he's fantastic so I'm really truly excited to uh, to have him on for what should be a really fun conversation
2: yeah and, and we cover so much ground uh, or we will cover so much ground with him it's 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 unbelievable it's and and you know his World Cup now, he was the guy who was the voice of England's run to the World Cup semi final the first time since 1990 so so that's huge too Andrew before we get into the football properly. Um, I I wanted to do something because I don't know. Have you noticed that media companies and, uh, you know, large corporate institutions are playing ads, kind of reminding people during this crisis that they're still there?
1: It's utterly relentless and I can't take it anymore.
2: Well, you're going to have to because I, I commissioned a special ad, especially for us, because I don't want anyone to forget that we're still here whether you like it or not. So I've had it voiced. Um, Would you like to hear it? Of course. Okay, here we go, Andrew. It's, It's very special. Here we go. In tough times, some things remain a constant, a comfort. They give hope. Others do not. Cut off side. We just won't go away.
1: It's, it's going to be hard to get through the rest of the show after that. That was moving. Did you enjoy that? <laughs> what uh, What networks can you see that uh, commercial on? Uh, uh you
2: can see it late night after the uh, after the Flex Seal commercials. Uh, we run it very late at night um, after the guy who can put the two boats together and then put Bill- it back.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I'm consistently um, amazed by that. I, every time I see that commercial, I, I get nervous all over again when he's in the boat with the sharks underneath him. I gotta got yeah. Are you sure that the, this, the material is that strong, that you're going to swim with sharks here?
2: Well, my concern for him is that if he does end up in the pool, I don't think he has the physical fitness to get away from the sharks. I'm sure he can swim. I don't know. He does not look buoyant.
1: <laughs> uh, all right. Let's, uh, let's talk about everything that's gone on over the past week. Like I said, Guy Mowbray coming up shortly. Um, there's actually a lot to talk about here. Um, I'm trying to think of where to begin. I guess we'll begin with, with what is concrete. And that is the French prime minister coming out this week and basically deciding for league and league D that the season is over and there will not be competitive sports until at least September. So it sounds like the leagues are going to shut it down. Um, we said last week after the, uh, the Netherlands made their decision about shutting it down that we couldn't help but wonder if a snowball was beginning to roll and if you were going to start to see other leagues kind of jump on board and they were just all waiting for that first domino to fall. The Belgian League has also said they will not come back. um, And now of those leagues, probably most prominently is the French League. Um, I'm curious what you think of that decision at this stage.
2: Um, I think it was utterly to be expected in France. Uh, This is a country where two weeks ago, The president, Emmanuel Macron, admitted mistakes and failures in their response, their initial response to the coronavirus. And the French right now are carefully and cautiously attempting to open up certain parts of their economy. And it makes sense that sports is going to be the loser in that. It's the the idea of um, even forgetting fans in stadia. Just think of the idea of bringing together... Uh, 22 plus, we'll say 60 players uh, plus ancillary staff uh, to crash into each other, to you know, be close to each other, to take away medical staff. Uh, I knew the French were going to go in this direction. And I actually think, Andrew, that we know the Bundesliga, not to jump ahead or anything, but the Bundesliga, the Bundesliga they've sent their plans um, to the government for approval. However, this week, there's been an uptick in coronavirus infections since they gradually relaxed some of their restrictions, I think, over the last 10 days. And it's likely that German authorities will not allow football, at least for May. So people were talking about the middle of May, and then they said, no, it'll be the end of May, but the Bundesliga will be back. Well, just from a statistical point of view, uh, 0.7 in terms of uh, spread is what, you have to it's what the Germans were at and you have to keep it under 1 and the Germans went up to 0.96 since they relaxed things so i mean if they're spooked by that football's going to get the can is going to kick further down the road in terms of of sport and rugby and 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 and, sp- and and football so i i just kind of expected this andrew
1: yeah a may what was it a may 8th return or may 9th return that they were hoping for in the bundesliga which is in a week and a half. Um, I mean, it just always felt a little too optimistic. And now we're seeing that hopes of that are are fading, um which is not shocking. Now, this leads us to the conversation about what they're going to do in England. Um, I think there's a hurdle here that we may have overlooked a little bit when we've been talking about, uh, the league's return. We've been talking about a lot of the different logistics. What are they going to do about fans? Uh, how uh, are there enough tests to go around to make sure players are are being tested properly before these games? I, I sometimes wonder. Maybe we didn't give enough credence to simply like what what do the players actually want to do? Like these guys aren't robots. It's not a situation where. England and the Premier League say you can go play again, and they just get in line and do it. These guys have their own thoughts and ideas of what is right and what is wrong, and we're starting to hear now uh, reports that there are players and there are managers um, from various clubs in England that are not comfortable with this, uh, with a possible return in the near future. Um, One source at a Premier League club told ESPN the following: "Quote: A lot of players are very uncomfortable with coming back. The only way the league takes this seriously is when someone at a club dies." We will look back on this time with sadness in the future. Um, That's a pretty strong comment there from whoever that uh, source was. Now, there's going to be a video conference of all club executives uh, this Friday, and they're going to further discuss the situation and when they think it's realistic to be able to return, and if they think it's going to be realistic to return. Um, There's a lot of questions here. Like There are clubs that are worried about, okay, let's say things are good Up north and like Newcastle and and that part of the country is okay, but let's say things in London are still bad. What sort of integrity of competition questions will there be if the London clubs can't play home matches, but some clubs can play only home matches? Um, You know, so there's questions like that uh, that remain. There's, I don't know. I've been saying throughout that the only option to me is to just end this thing uh, without a fair conclusion, and I'm starting to wonder if. If I've been harsh in that assessment um, first of all there's England is just let's just
2: look at things right now in the United Kingdom and in England. Andrew they're way behind on what they need to be that the, in terms of testing like there will not be enough tests available to test the players on the regular basis that we would need to do to ensure there is no infection in this enclosed league. Um, I, I I read today in L'Equipe keep something that I mean, if, if if this is the thinking in football, or the thinking that's beginning to creep into the game, that maybe we don't see what we thought at the start would be some kind of conclusion. Um, the president of the FIFA Medical Commission, the Belgian Michel Deaux, said he was very sceptical about a return to competition. In an interview with the BBC, he said the following, the situation is different country by country. The peak is not reached everywhere at the same time. But today, April 28th, we are not ready for a resumption of football competitions, said the doctor, former member of the FIFA Executive Committee and former president of the Belgian Football Federation. And I'm just pushing that forward. Andrew, we're talking about a resumption of the league in in June or July. I, I don't think conditions will be will be okay to do that.
1: And UEFA is setting a May twenty-fifth deadline for when leagues need to decide what they're gonna do. And that like that's a month from it's less than a month from but, now. But and, it, and I don't know if, if things how much different things are going to be today, especially if you're seeing things like in Germany, where they're getting ready to come back and now there's an uptick once again, uh, in coronavirus activity. Right. Like if that happens now in other leagues, like May twenty fifth, leagues are not going to be able to definitively say, yes, we're gonna be able to come back.
2: But but also if they do, that what they'll do is they'll submit whatever plan that they can put together, and the and and the virus will dictate because,
1: right? That's basically what's going to happen. Um, well, here here's what worries me uh, is I saw this from Dan Rowan at the BBC, and he wrote this. He wrote with Prime Minister Boris Johnson preparing to return to work after recuperating from his own brush with coronavirus. The league was told Downing Street wanted top flight football back as soon as possible to help boost people's morale after months in lockdown, and to support the game commercially with many jobs on the line and the water football industry desperate for a restart. Premier League bosses had let it be known just how important it was that the season be completed, pointing to the three-quarters of a billion pounds that contractually would have to be paid back to live TV rights holders Sky and BT. Whether the two broadcasters actually intend to demand all of the refund they're entitled to if the season cannot resume remains unclear. If the league comes back, JJ, I need to know that it's coming back for the right reasons. It can't simply be coming back so Sky Sports and and the finances and BT Sport and the finances of that deal are worked out. That can't be the reason. And even, well, I'm not going to say even more than that, equal to that, look, I love sports. They mean a whole hell of a lot to me, as they do you, as they do pretty much everybody listening to this podcast right now. But I'm sorry. The reason for this game to come back cannot simply be to boost morale. This is too important. Um, too many lives are at stake. There's like this is a matter of people's health. This is a, a in, in many cases, it's gonna be a life and death decision. It can't just be we need to boost morale around the country, so we're gonna put X number of lives on the line here. That's not good enough. People will just have to cope with a year without sports. I'm sorry. Well, I
2: there's I agree with you wholeheartedly with that, but it it, it is not a coincidence to me that the Premier League are on the hook for three quarters of a billion if this is not completed, and they're desperate to get it completed. It's not a coincidence to me that DAZN have not paid down the fourth instalment of their payment to the Bundesliga, and the Bundesliga are mad to
1: get this to get this played. Like those yeah. are just well, facts. Now, I will say this: I, I don't know how this is going to go, but Sky and BT for for whatever greed. And maybe I'll be proven wrong here, and I'll be sad if I am. But for whatever greed you think is involved—not you, general—you is involved in companies like Sky Sports or BT Sport. um, I just simply cannot believe that they will demand a full refund. Like there has to, like they've still, they've still received the benefits of having the Premier League on their networks week in, week out. They've gotten huge ratings numbers. They've been able to cha- charge those advertisers and marketing. So, like, I, I, Andrew, I, I Andrew, believe that some sort of compromise will come, prorated compromise will happen.
2: Andrew, not to disparage our own, but these are companies with, you know, investors and shareholders. When's the last time a major corporate entity let anyone off the hook for billions
1: or even created? Like, like but, that is- but don't you think that would be complete? Like, I would think that the Premier League could almost take Sky Sport. To, to court if Sky Sports demanded a full refund when when we've had seventy five percent of the season completed. That's, I mean that's I, not right. I mean I think they would. Uh, I mean
2: I'm sure they'd have some grounds to do that. But I, I'm I'm not a legal expert. I can't I can't argue. No, I know, me neither. And and I just want to say that you know the Conservative government pushing to in, in England the the Tory party and Boris Johnson pushing to have Premier League football back in the middle of the summer. When A, they don't have testing up to where it needs to be. And, and and B, also, it's the second time during this pandemic that we've seen politics use, like it will be a great diversion to have Premier League football back. Can you imagine the numbers? Can you imagine the engagement? It'll be a huge diversion from the people. I'm saying diversion, not morale boost. They've already used footballers and their pay cuts as a kind of a, you know, a smoke and mirrors job to deflect from the job that they've been doing
1: themselves. Yeah, I just hope that the Premier League here does the right thing because they don't early on so far. You know, they haven't had a great track record. Remember when this all started? They were gonna play until Mikel Arteta tested positive, and then there was kind of this like why that was basically the EPL's Rudy Gobert moment. Like they were gonna go ahead, I think, and continue playing until he tested positive, and if really fun, it hit closer to home for everyone. There's
2: blame, there's blame to go around with that. It was absolute madness. For the Cheltenham Horse Festival to be hosted, and it was crazy for Atlético Madrid to play Liverpool and for Valencia to travel to Italy. All those things were were absolute in 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 hindsight were were, were insanity. Knowing right. even
1: knowing even what we knew then, but um, but that's the thing though. Is can like, I take this real, back? To well, the real, real, I just want to go. I'm sorry, but I just want to go off what you just said there. You say in hindsight, like I think that in certain instances and. People who have lost loved ones don't want to hear this, and I get that. But you know, we can look back 2020 hindsight and now say that that was crazy. But I think you do have to put yourself back in the context, the context of the moment when we didn't really have a, a great mental grasp yet on what this is. So in some respects, you can almost excuse you know, the decision to have that Champions League match played and things like that. But to do it now, when we do know what we know, and we have seen firsthand just how dangerous this virus is, That's when there are no more excuses. Well, can I take it back to the players as well?
2: We have had scenarios where um, in this country where healthy and fit people in their 30s have died. Okay, this thing we're only begin. The medical professions are only beginning to grapple with the complexity of what this can do to major organs, to the brain. We've seen strokes. We've seen heart attacks from this, from young people. I read an article in the New York Times about a 40-something-year-old fit person who had no underlying uh, health conditions, and it took the most amazing acts and feats of, of working on the fly for them to save this person's life, yeah. right? We've seen – I mean, we really could be talking about a dead Premier League player when we consider the testimony – of thirty-seven-year-old Pepe Reina, we really could, Andrew. And you're and what we're talking about now is putting those guys back in danger. Also, putting elderly men in danger. Roy Hodgson, who is who is in the the most at-risk category of age. Like, what's he going to do? He can't be with his team. That's that would be insane. I think we really need to. I I don't. I saw John Nicholson um, from Football Three Six Five tweet out about when would you feel it safe to come back to the games. And he had three different categories. And one of the categories was, I would only attend a game or, you know, go back to football when we have a vaccine. And I think the same should apply for actual competition. And that is tough. But people's lives are far more important than the execution and the ending of the Premier League or the Bundesliga or La Liga.
1: I'm sorry. Yeah. I've uh, Life... I think- is too precious. You're right. Ultimately, here we just have to trust the people that don't that don't have a vested interest. You know what I mean? Right. Like, like when Anthony Fauci says something in the United States, it, it holds weight with me because I don't believe he necessarily has a vested interest in whether sports come back or don't. I think he's just going to tell you the simple facts. So, like you know, that's those are the people that I trust right now. I don't know government officials uh tv networks like no these those are not necessarily the people no. that who who's who what they say carries a ton of weight with me um i'll tell you what we've got a big i'm i'm looking forward to our mailbag you sent me the questions earlier and some of these you guys had great responses to the question we asked last week when jj um watched rewatched the liverpool crystal palace match the, when palace came from 3-0 down to equalize and essentially end liverpool's title hopes a lot of you guys had uh, good responses to the matches you would never watch again. We'll get to those in a little bit. It's a nice mailbag, very healthy mailbag. But now I'm so excited. We talked about this a few minutes ago. Uh, longtime broadcaster. Uh, he's done World Cups, Champions Leagues. You can hear him on the BBC. One of our favorite guys uh, in the business right now, Guy Mowbray, joins the show now. Guy, what's up, man? How are you?
0: I'm okay, thanks, guys, uh, considering everything. Got my health, physically at least, and that's the main thing in these times.
1: Yeah, I guess uh that's kind of like the first and foremost question that's kind of most important to everyone right now. How are you doing? How's your family doing? And how are you getting by essentially during these uh these last 6 weeks?
0: Yeah, we're okay. Um it's a little bit strange having a 13-year-old at home when she should be at school. Um and my wife's working from home as well. She normally works in a school, so she's she's doing a lot of her stuff from home. Um so yeah, we're doing okay. We're we're just um there's good days and bad days. There's some days of boredom. There's some days of mild crazed euphoria. Um, but yeah, we're doing, we're doing as well as we can. I've actually just spent the last couple of days because I've, I've got to the point where I feel I've got to do some work. I've been researching, doing some preparation for Euro 2020, which of course will now happen in Euro 2021. Um, but I've, I've done Russia, I've done Croatia and I'll get on to Denmark tomorrow. <laughs>
2: That's very productive, Guy. Um, I've been following you on Twitter, and I, I don't want to call you out because you're certainly not lying. I well believe that you are working very hard, but uh, I want to hone in on one of these tweets here. It's a two, This is a two-part question for you. Uh, you tweeted on uh, April 25th, I love play, uh, playing my part in making those World Cup re- re- rewind programs, and I adore watching them, but they aren't half making me miss the here and now stuff. G&T time, I think. Uh, the first part of my question is, what part of the 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 here and now stuff, the the day to day of the commentary life, are you missing? And the second part is, w- what brand of uh, gin are you
0: are you drinking? <laughs> we'll deal with the second part first, shall we? Um, I stay local, and um, I, I'm very much into York Gin, which is uh, from the first city of York in Northern England, and uh, an old school friend of mine actually. Is a, a a big player behind the company, so he's he's making the stuff. So I figure I'd better help him out by drinking it. Um, other than that, yeah, I, I I would have said it was just the uh, the match days, um, the buzz around the match days, not just the matches themselves, but seeing all my my colleagues and just everything about the Saturday Sunday game um, would have been the main thing I was missing. But I've realised in the last few days, it, it's actually the stuff. From my home office, it's the prep, it's, it's doing all the research and doing the revision for the games that I've been missing as well, which is why, really, I thought, you know what, I don't have any specific games to prepare for now, but if I get some of the skeleton stuff done for next summer's European Championships, okay, we're 14 months away, but... It's all knowledge in the bank. It's not going to go anywhere, and I can just update when we get nearer the time. So that's what I've been doing. And actually, it's got me back into sort of some sort of rhythm, some sort of routine, which we all need to some extent.
2: Yeah, Guy, can I ask you about the routine of, we'll say, a normal week, uh, a match of the day is there is there a ground is there a team when you see it on your schedule you think yes i am going to enjoy this i'm really up for it um what is your routine in in the lead up to a to a
0: premier league weekend the, the routine is is it's a bit like i always compare it to when you're a student and you're, you're doing exams so for every game every game is an exam and I've got to put the preparation and in the, in the revision to know everything that could happen in that game. So there's a heck of a lot to do. It never actually ends. It's a seven-day-a-week job, if you can call it a job, because it is basically a paid passion, isn't it? So, yeah, that, that's what I do day-to-day. Day. That never ends. As soon as I get my, my rotor sort of six weeks in advance, I'm prepping three or four games at a time. Um, and as regards grounds that I like going to, all of them throughout the course of a season, because you never know where the good games are going to be obviously the juices get flowing a little bit more if you're if you're sent to one of the real, the real crackers. I mean, the weekend before lockdown, I did the Manchester derby at Old Trafford the day before I was at Anfield for Liverpool against Bournemouth. And when you go to those grounds and for those occasions, yeah, you do get a little bit more excited. But the good games can be anywhere. So I, I don't mind going anywhere because too often the actual blockbuster games let you down a bit. And some of the ones in the lower half of the Premier League table could be where the real excitement's at. So don't mind. As long as we get a good spread and I get to go everywhere throughout the season, that's the main thing. Well, Guy, I'm going to do some
1: gushing here. You did a couple blockbuster games last season. You were on the call of the second leg of both Tottenham Man City and Tottenham yeah. Ajax in the Champions well, League. And I'm, you're, you're talking to a Spurs supporter right now. And I just want to say, uh, as a Tottenham fan, it was an incredible moment. And you actually found a way to add to the moment. Your calls were incredible. You had a line in particular at the end of the uh, the Man City, the second leg against Man City, um, when the bar review was going on and you said, my goodness, as if there couldn't be any more drama. It felt like you had kind of been sucked into the match almost the same way that supporters of both clubs are. And I don't even really have a question so much as to just sort of, if you can kind of take us back to the moment of that game, the Ajax game, and just sort of tell us what your Feeling sitting there in that arena, oh. watching that all transpire in front of you.
0: Well, first of all, Andrew, thank you very much for saying that. That's um, th- that's much appreciated. Um, yeah, um, I got a little bit of goosebumps actually when you you were just saying those words then, because I was I was remembering the end of that Manchester City game and and just that the confusion, the excitement mixed with confusion. You think Raheem Sterling's completed his hat trick. You think City have got the goal to make it incredibly. You know the, them to go through five three on aggregate, and after everything we'd seen, you, you couldn't quite you couldn't quite quantify that in your brain. And then you glance down and you think, "Hang on, this goal isn't going to stand." And I struck lucky in a way in that we we just glanced and, and saw that the referee was was talking to his assistant, and you saw him put his finger to his ear, and and you just say, "Hang on a minute, he might have been offside here." And, and then the replay comes on and by airing that you you have something to work on because this was at a time when var was new to all of us it still is relatively so there's a lot of confusion going on we're we're getting used to it just as much as anybody else as as all the supporters and spectators around the world are so there's a lot of very fast processing going on in your brain and i think my my brain computer went up from from 8 gig to 16 gig in in one one swoop there with that one um that that was tough but it was it, it certainly got you going and as for that 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 3-2 win for Spurs at Ajax, that that was, I've, I, I don't think I've ever seen two days of football like that back-to-back in my life. The day before Liverpool had beaten Barcelona 4-0 from 3-0 down first leg, and then Spurs from 3-0 down on aggregate, let's not forget, Ajax were 2-0 up in that second leg. For Spurs to come back with Lucas Moura's hat-trick like that, six minute of injury time, was it the winner of the final goal? Something like that. You get those. I think it was right on. Seasons. Yeah, it was like, yeah, you get those games once every five seasons. You don't
1: get that.
0: two nights. That 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 was yeah, unbelievable. What, what a gr- it was a great season, and actually the final of the Champions League last season, we we think it led us down a bit. But that would have been too much to ask after quarterfinals and semifinals like that. We we couldn't have had a final as well. That would have been crazy.
1: Yeah, I've always felt, guy, that the line I brought it up in particular. The uh, the my goodness, as if there couldn't be any more drama. First of all, I think it could get you could get it printed on T-shirts. And I think Tottenham fans would buy it, uh, but I, I've, ta- I've told the story before um, to JJ just how you know, how despondent I was watching that, and then like I- I'm not even facing the TV anymore. I kind of have my head in my shoulder, just like <laughs> contemplating what had just happened, and then hearing you say that line. I sort of just like glanced back at the TV, like, wait a minute, is this not over? Like, am I being like sucked back from the jaws of defeat here? And it's just one of those lines that just, I think it resonates with me and, and with all Spurs fans because it kind of just gave them new life to this run that they won on. It was it was incredible, really, I mean, truly, great you've job. Just,
0: you've just reminded me, Um, you had the advantage of it being earlier in the evening in the States because I know not just stories that I've heard, but I've spoken to a couple of people who actually did this. Tottenham fans in the UK went to bed thinking they were out. It wasn't until the next morning that they, they hang on a minute. How did that happen? They turned the TV off. They thought they were gone. Oh my god! And, and there's there's a number of people that that happened to that night. So that that just sums up just how almost ridiculous and and we use the word incredible too much, don't we? But that was not credible. That that does that does not happen. But it did in front of our eyes. And uh, yeah, that that's. <laughs> I actually wrote a piece for the BBC website yesterday, which I think will be on this weekend, and it was just asking about various things about commentary. And they were asking me about a favourite goal. Now, I'm not great with memories of goals, but once I've done one game, I'm on to the next, and I don't retain. I can remember score lines and things, but the actual goals, I can't quite, unless they're absolutely out of this world, I can't quite picture them sometimes. And what I wrote about instead was, I remember Son's goal this season against Burnley, where he ran from the edge of his six-yard box the full length mm. of the field. And I remember that one because you don't see goals like that very often anymore. You used to see them a lot. Now it's more about team goals and passing and shots from 25 yards maybe, but you don't see the individual solo runs as much as you used to. So that stuck in my mind. And it was the sore goal, and it was the same with Lucas Moura's third goal against Ajax in the semi-final last season. There are certain goals that, as a commentator, test you. And they test you in not swearing. And <laughs> they're the goals. They're the goals that I remember. The question I ask more than ever is, how do you not swear when you're doing a commentary? People see me in the bars and in the pub, you know, the local pub here. And yeah, I'm, I'm, my profanity is as, as bad as anybody else's. But when you're on air, it doesn't happen. There's an auto switch. You just don't do it. YouTube two be the same. You don't do it when you're broadcasting. You, I don't know why you don't do it, but you just don't do it. Something switches automatically. But when a goal like that goes in, and you are dumbstruck for a second you are very close believe me i have been close so many times to just coming out with something that would be career ending and the lucas Murray winner at ajax was one of those moments just pause for a second don't say anything ridiculous something crazy might come out and then you gather your thoughts
2: and and guy you admitted on twitter that you nearly uh, delved into the 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 term and and i will we sometimes we swear on this podcast we're not supposed to and we <laughs> andrew bleeps it out Andrew bleeps it out, but in deference to the BBC and Her Majesty the Queen, I will not use the first part of what you were going to say about the Colombians. I will just suggest that it was housery yeah. of some kind of... Yeah, you nearly... You, you said you nearly said that during I did. the commentary.
0: I did, and I watched it back the other day, the England-Columbia game from the World Cup 2018, and I actually got angry. Nearly two years on, I got angry watching it. and more angry now than at the time, and I think it's because I was sitting at home watching it dispassionately watching it away from it all just as a spectator rather than a respectable broadcaster so um yeah i i I got angry i was swearing at the tv the other day when i watched that back two years on because their behavior throughout that entire game was absolutely despicable and it was yeah four-letter word it
2: was dreadful before we get to that guy and and that night against Colombia because I do want to talk about that. Um you said something very interesting earlier on there. You talked about the microprocessor, the way a commentator is challenged by, is challenged by a moment. And it's a question I get a lot over here from um from from American soccer fans. There's a stop-start nature to the uh American game apart from hockey that gives you a chance to to maybe come up with something. Peter Drury said he didn't come up or he didn't pre-rehearse the line about Manilus, the Greek god, in the no, Champions no. League final, or the Champions League semi-final or quarter-final that became famous. Um, can you definitively answer this? You don't come into a game with an inkling, thinking, "Oh well, if he scores, I've got some snazzy wordplay I can interject here."
0: Spot on. I can back Peter up one hundred percent. Absolutely not. Um, you, you just don't do it. One, we're not very good actors. We react to what we see, and what comes out, comes out. Um, I got asked about this the other day, and it was a line from a, a game in the World Cup in 2014. Hulk scored for Brazil. What did I say? Incredible. Well, that's pretty, that's pretty cheesy and pathetic, really, to be honest. But it's a natural thing. It's, it's Wood, but it's Pavlov's dog, isn't it? You say Hulk. Well, incredible Hulk. There we go. Um, and that came out. And you don't. that's a poor one. That's, that's not a Peter Drury's class by a million miles. I've done better ones than that. But that's the first one that's come to mind. Um, and it's pure instinctive reaction. Um, you might have an idea as you're driving to the game or and you're on the train or the plane, you might have a rough idea of you going through the game in your head and you you won't ever pre-planned lines or anything, but you might have an idea, a spark that comes into your brain and you might sort of put that into the corner for later. But you will never, ever pre-prep a line. The only times you do is for the team news at the start before the action starts. Once the action starts, it's about what comes into your head as you're watching the game live. And it's the pure reaction of what you're thinking at the time. And anything other than that would be completely disingenuous and wouldn't be proper commentary. And I'm pretty much certain that any commentator worth their salt would mess it up if they tried to do that anyway. We're not good actors.
1: Guy, I'm curious. You mentioned how you were watching England-Columbia, and even now, two years later, you still get angry at points watching that game. <laughs> when you're broadcasting uh, England will you call that game differently than you would say any random EPL match simply because you have the knowledge of knowing that the vast majority of people watching back home are all supporting the team in in, in white or in red? Is that, will you call it differently? Will you call it more like a fan because of that?
0: Depends who I'm broadcasting to. If it's on the BBC and you are pretty certain that your audience is, well, it's certainly a, a huge majority of people are wanting England to win, then I might do. Actually, England games are the only ones where I might do them slightly. Any other game is down the line. It's one team against another. And again, it's a bit like the not swearing. The autopilot kicks in and you do watch one team against another. That's it. and And you call it as you see it. With England, it's just a little bit, a little bit different. You almost go back to your training in local radio. A lot of us grew up in local radio where you are watching the same team week in, week out, and 90-plus percent of your listeners are supporters of that team. And One of my early gigs was I was doing Sunderland in the northeast of England. I did every Sunderland game for five years, and they were great times. And, and, you know, you do that tailored to your audience. You're not biased. You don't call things ridiculously like saying, well, how is that not a penalty and that should be a red card and all that. But you might make it a little bit clearer who you're, whose side you're on. You still call the game and the happenings in the game absolutely down the middle, but there can be a little bit of disappointment if they're losing and a little bit of extra excitement if they're winning. And uh, they're, they're the only differences that I would do in England football. But that would be only if I'm absolutely certain that that's what the audience is wanting. Because if you didn't do it, you'd just annoy people. You, you, you'd annoy the hell out of them a little bit. A little bit like you would if you were biased in a in a in a game that. You know, a regular game, um, one of the Champions League games that I was saying before. I know we do get a little bit of criticism, some of us are English commentators, um, for being, there's, there's sort of this idea that when there's an English team involved in the Champions League, we're a little bit skewed towards them rather than, say, Ajax or Juventus if they're playing against them. I don't hold with that. I think that's nonsense. I think that's just, I always say bias is in the ear of the beholder. Um, who you want to win affects how you listen to it. And I have this conversation with football watchers all the time. If you're, for example, a West Ham supporter and you're listening to me commentate on West Ham against Manchester United, you're pretty guaranteed to think that I'm a Manchester United supporter. Or you could insert any team's name into there Um, because you will hear what you want to hear. And if I'm not subscribing to that 100% with what I'm saying, therefore, I hate you. And that any bias is always your perception. I can guarantee you, any commentator that's got anywhere near top TV levels anywhere in the world. Will not be biased in the course of doing their job because they wouldn't have got anywhere near that level if they were. That had have been found out way down the line. Well, guy, I, I reject the
2: fact that it's my fault that I want that I've wanted England to lose every game for the past twenty five
0: years. It's entirely not your my fault. fault. And, and by, by the way, you've been pretty successful at making it happen.
2: <laughs> oh, I, I, unbelievable! And, let, and let's talk about the moment that uh, that my joy was shattered. Um, penalty shootouts in World Cups. I remember being but a boy watching um, the shootout against West Germany in 1990. And I've watched, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by England and England in major tournaments. It's There's so much drama, there's so much intrigue, and there's so much tragedy. Shakespeare couldn't have written it himself. But l- let's talk about that moment. Eric, Eric Dyer is stepping up to take the conclusive penalty against Colombia. Now, this is a moment where, where Guy Mowbray, I'm assuming... Uh, must feel pressure because this is a piece of history about to happen and your voice will be the soundtrack to that.
0: To be honest, two hours plus into a game like that, you're not thinking about yourself at all. You're just completely wrapped up in it. And again, what comes out, comes out. Um, there's, a, there's a few things with that. Uh, one, oh, you, you, you've just pressed my buttons there. Because you know what? In an international tournament, as if I take myself away from being a, a commentator on the games for a moment, I support Scotland, I support England, I support the Republic of Ireland, I support Northern Ireland, I support Wales. And most it doesn't English work the other way. Do. I know it doesn't, but oh, oof. anyway, <laughs> we'll leave that aside. We'll leave that aside. You, you knew what you were doing there. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. oh yeah. The the other bit is, the other bit is um that moment that was the best moment of the World Cup for me. Um uh, and, and there there's the, the, a few reasons for it um one it was pretty dramatic and when we saw eric dyer walking up my first thought and i am going to swear a bit here was it's eric dyer um there was there was a there was a lot of us sort of looking around eyes raised going really really and, you know there was a bit of panic um <laughs> for some reason, we all knew Jordan Henderson would miss. I don't know why. He's he's, he's one of my favourite players. He's now standing captain of Liverpool. Um, but for some reason, I, I knew. I just had a feeling. You get that, don't you? We, we all get that. That feeling on penalties when you just know. And I, I reckon I have more than a 50% success rate with my predictions. I've, I've never done it scientifically, but you just know they're not going to score. Something's going to happen here. Um, And, yeah, so there was a little bit of trepidation. And, and by the way, that was nearly saved, that penalty. Um, it wasn't the best penalty, to be honest. Yeah, it was, um, yeah. uh, was it a spin? It was the Arsenal keeper, wasn't it? Who, who got down and uh, the ex-Arsenal keeper, who, who very nearly, very nearly kept um, But the best moment for me was at the end where we'd wrapped up. We'd done the closing lines. I'm with Danny Murphy on, on commentary. We've wrapped up with our closing thoughts. We've just come off air. And I felt a tap on my shoulder. And I turned around. And leaning over from the commentary position behind us, which was occupied for that game by the stadium in Spartak Moscow, the positions were such that BBC National Radio 5 Live were right behind us. So some of our radio colleagues were sitting behind us. And I felt a tap on my shoulder. And it was Chris Waddle who'd been doing the summarising, the co-commentary for the radio. And Chris just wanted to give me a high five. I'm, I'm going to go again here. I'm just two years on. Chris wanted to give me a high five, wow. and he was in tears. He was in tears. Oh. And the guy that missed the penalty that was key in 1990 was in floods of tears because it was almost like a cleansing experience for him. It it, it, it had gone. The pain had gone. And then I started. I'm starting again. Goodness me. Oh. Um, yeah, that, that, was, that was the magic moment for me, to share that with him.
2: Yeah that that special guy and, and and look um you know I I can tease and joke and everything it's 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 banter between the home nations and and the islands back home um but I I definitely felt I was watching a BBC montage version of of the highlights of England's world cup Oh Club, it's great that and, isn't it
0: is great that really well put it, together
2: It's it's beautiful it's got the national uh playing in the background which is a, one of my favorite bands and and, and nobody does 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 high sentiment or drama quite like the national that summer must have been just absolutely gorgeous for you
0: it was yeah it was I I enjoyed Russia hugely Uh, we'd we'd gone into it with a lot of people full of trepidation and you know oh it's a dangerous place and oh it's not very nice and it'll be awful over there I never had that you know the previous two World Cups have been in Brazil and South Africa and we were told they were unsafe as well and we'd had nothing but wonderful times. So I had no worries at all. I I knew it would be fine. And it was. It was a wonderful country. Everybody was hospitable. We had some great experiences away from football, apart from me nearly being arrested for losing something out of my passport in week two. That was quite interesting for four hours in a in a Russian police station in a cellar underground with some strange Ooh, oh techno house music. All the time I'm being questioned there's some strange techno house music playing which was very very surreal. Um but but anyway we managed they were trying through.
2: to break you down.
0: They were, but we, we managed to get through that. Um, and, and yeah, the whole tournament was fantastic. So never mind England. The best game for me was Argentina-France. France beating Argentina 4-3 was was an absolutely outstanding game. I, I adored that. It was so exciting. Um, uh, so, so they were all good. The England games are sort of kind on of a different feel because of the pressure you can feel the tension in the studio you can feel you get more calls from producers and the build-up basically telling you how to do your job telling you how to suck eggs my job's no different no matter which teams it involves but they're they're a bit on edge they're a bit tense because they know there's millions watching at home so it takes on a bit of a different feel as it grew and we thought this could when the draw opened up we thought this could be onto something for England here um it, it and that penalty shootout win just took it to a new level. That's when people started to think, hang on a minute, hang on a minute. Quarterfinal Sweden was a breeze through to the semis. For me, the strange feeling when I remember it now was after that win over Sweden, I kind of felt, again, a bit of a sixth sense. I thought, we're not going to win the semi. We're not going to, we're just not going. It's too good to be true. And it proved so. It proved so. And even when England were 1-0 up in the semi, when Kieran Trippier scored a brilliant free kick, I didn't get too excited. Maybe I had my professional head on. I don't know. But I didn't get too excited. And, and I did call in the goal. But inside, I wasn't exactly bursting thinking, I'm going to do a World Cup final involving in England. I I kind of just knew. Maybe it's years of supporting a crap team in England, York City, and <laughs> all the disappointment. Maybe you just And years of watching England at major tournaments. Maybe you just brace yourself for disappointment and anything else is a bonus. Yeah. And uh, maybe you score too soon, Guy. Oh, without a doubt. Without a doubt. Yeah. I, I think the pressure to get to the players a little bit. and actually. Semi-finals was as good as that squad should have achieved. Um, they did brilliantly. They, they were superbly managed by Gareth Southgate. I really hope he can carry on and 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 do do great things when when all this is over and we see some football again. Um, but I think that squad achieved as much as it possibly could have achieved. I think so.
1: Yeah, guy, I wanted to uh, I wanted to bring you back, I guess, to kind of the the sad reality of today uh, mm. and the Premier League. And JJ and I were talking before you came on. Uh, about, the, there was a report at ESPN, I'm sure you guys have seen it over in England as well, about some uh, Premier League players feeling a little bit uncomfortable coming back to their clubs during a pandemic. Um, and, and I'm just curious, that's the players' side of it. How would you feel? I mean, if you were called back to one of these stadiums to broadcast these games, uh, would you feel uncomfortable with that?
0: No, not at all. I I don't have any worries on that score whatsoever. I would trust everybody to put all precautions in place and I think you get to a point of what what can you do? You know, we can't stay indoors forever. Going to have to come outside at some, some point. And this thing just will, will not just suddenly disappear. It's still going to be around. So I, I'm, I I would go back and do games tomorrow if I was called upon. I do understand the reticence. And I haven't really got a feeling either way on whether it's right or wrong to be talking about a return at some point in June, which is what's been talked about at the moment. I understand some people will be reticent about it. I understand some people just can't wait to get it on. I'm just going to be guided by whatever advice I'm asked to do, I will do. Um, because I've just heard so many people saying, oh, we shouldn't be doing it. It's foolhardy. It's far too soon. But then I hear other people saying, well, hang on a minute, you've got a plan and we've got to make a comeback at some point. So if we can do it, why not do it as soon as possible? Listen, I'm not an expert on any of this, so I will just go with the advice given and trust trust the authorities, be it the government, be it the Premier League. I would trust them to not send us back anywhere until it is deemed safe to do so. I don't think it's ever going to be 100% safe for a long time. In fact, nothing ever is, is there? I, I could have an accident on the way to the ground. So nothing's ever perfectly safe. I would I would just go with the advice that I'm given. Guy, before
2: we let you go, um, you, you mentioned that you're a supporter of a lower league side. Um uh, What's, what's the feeling from England, from what the reports we're getting here in the United States? There's there's a lot of clubs who are not going to come out of this um, and may not survive um,
0: financially. What's your read on that? Stats, I think, going to be an inevitable, sad conclusion of all this. Um, there will be clubs going out of business, and part of that is simply because a lot of clubs live beyond their means permanently. Um, I think the ones that do go will be the ones that, possibly haven't been doing things in quotes right for, for quite a while. Um, there will be natural casualties. Um, every sympathy for the supporters of those clubs, it's nothing to do with them. It's it's not their their, their fault that clubs are in, in difficult financial situations. Um, I've thought for a long time that we have, and this is a controversial view, and I don't want any club to go out of business because it's all about supporters, Um but I thought we have too many professional clubs in the country, and I include my own in that York City we're now you know historically we are a league club we're one of the ninety two historically, but we've been down now in non league for wow, five years again, something like that, and we've been down for the last three years um and yet we're still a full time professional club getting two and a half thousand people watching every home game um that that can't be sustainable long term and the problem with this the problem with this is. Um, there's no TV money at that level not really so if you don't have people coming through the turnstiles to watch the games you don't have any income Um, and my club might might struggle for that I I think we're in a better position than most because we're slightly bigger than a lot of clubs at that level um, we're actually we're actually top of the division at the moment. There's a big talking point around my area about, well, the league should be suspended now and we should go up because we're top. But the team behind, Kings Lynn, have got two games in hand and are only two points behind. So they would have something to say about that. Um, there will be no fair way of settling this. Um, it's going to be unfair to somebody, no matter how you settle it. My, my take on it is, well, listen, at the end of all this, never mind the division and promotion, let's just hope we've got a club to support because the league structure... Might all change anyway? That the structure of the leagues—if some got a business—different. Well, would be It's it's really really sad. But, but, but haven't we heard for a long long time? People have been saying the soccer bubble will burst at some point. Yes. Now, yeah, we didn't we didn't know it would come like this, but maybe this is it bursting.
1: So, it's a bleak picture. That, that it is. Do no, something upbeat. Say something upbeat again. Come on, get us back. Yeah. On track. Well. Okay. I will. I got. You've been so kind with your time. I got two more quick ones for you that are a little bit kind of random ones. The first one, it was something uh, JJ mentioned in your Twitter feed before, which is great. Uh, I saw you tweet this. Uh, I forgot how weird some of Suarez's behavior was slash is. <laughs> Knowing that you were coming on, I was like, oh yes, I get to ask him what it was he was watching that prompted him to tweet that.
0: That that was um, one of our programs at the BBC looking back at, at, at old stuff, and I've been putting together these World Cup Rewind programs where we look back at great games from past World Cups. Now, we can't forget what he did to Chiellini, um, <laughs> biting him in Brazil. Um, but but we had a program last Saturday night and it was, it was Gary Lineker, Alan Shearer and Ian Wright. And they're, they're at the moment doing a match of the day top 10s. And they're talking about top 10 overseas players, mm. top 10, you know, various things. And last week was top 10 crazy moments from the Premier League's history. And one of them was Suarez biting Ivanovic in a Liverpool Chelsea game at Anfield. Now, I not remember oh, <laughs> I called that game. And I'd actually forgotten I'd called that game. But I watched it back and you could hear my voice at the time when we saw the replay. And why I tweeted that and put weird. Now we all know he's got a past form for doing this several times and various other slightly underhand tactics on the field. Um but I'd forgotten the nature of the bite, he, you know, it wasn't just a, a sort of, I don't suppose a bite can ever be casual, but it wasn't just, he properly grabbed hold of his arm, sank his head. It was like watching something from a vampire movie. It, oh, yeah. it was actually vampire behavior. And <laughs> and it just made me think, you know, that's just, that's not just wrong. It is weird. It is absolutely no. weird. Because, Inhuman, yes. yeah. Yeah, that's that's a better word. You should do my job. <laughs>
2: <laughs> guy i don't i don't want to cut across you there but if you ever get a chance to uh to google or look up uh right thompson uh from espn did a great piece on suarez pre the chiellini bite, mm. and it gives some kind of uh pop psychology and a kind of look into why he is the way that he is it's a it's a good read does
0: it conclude um, that he is actually a vampire
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah it does it, it does it's uh, it, that's the conclusion that comes to suarez is a vampire and also also, you've not been short on the old, the old controversial opinions on Twitter. You think Cantona was correct? Uh, to, no, uh, I didn't. I
0: didn't quite say that. I said at times. Well, that's the way times, I read it. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at times, I look back and think, yeah, I don't blame him. Quite honestly, I do too. Um, yeah, I do too. Because you know, I, I get, I get a little bit annoyed at some of the stick that players get. I understand. I understand. It's great. It's all part of the passion. But I think there is a line. There's a line that people know not to cross. And I actually admire the restraint. And funnily enough, we go back again to that England-Columbia game at the World Cup, how the England players kept their cool when all that was going on. Before Harry Kane took the penalty in in normal time in the game, one of their guys, Barrios, followed him. Followed him. And there was a a two, three-minute delay before he took the penalty because of all the complaining. But, But as they surrounded the referee... One of their guys, Barrios, just followed Harry Kane. He just walked an inch behind him as he had the ball under his arm. Now, if that had be me, I'd have turned around and clocked him one. <laughs> you know, I mean, it, 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 the restraint that the England players showed was, I think, it was a... It was Gareth Southgate coming out in them because he was like that as a player and he's like that as a man. He's, he's a gentleman. And, and I think the England players deserve... I think that's a the, the high spot, actually, the World Cup. Never mind getting to the semifinals. The way they got to the semifinals deserves a bit of praise, too, because there was a heck of a lot of provocation and they didn't write the
1: prompts. Yeah. Wonderful English restraint on show.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> Guy, last one for you. JJ and I, we, we almost have like an obsession with loud roars from crowds after big goals. And sometimes when we have commentators on i know you said you don't necessarily have a great memory for specific goals but you know like we've talked about lee griffith second for scotland against england aguero against qpr do you have one that you remember from a game you were at like a roar that you were just like blown away
0: by the noise of it i do actually um and was going back quite a few years it was celtic against juventus in the champions Ah. league um now would that have been what year was that I'm going to just look it up while I'm talking to you because I can't remember what year
2: 2000,
0: it was it, it was oh now then here we go here we go 2001 October 2001 and it, yeah Halloween 31st of October 2001 Celtic 4 Juventus 3 I was working for ITV at the time and I called the game at Celtic Park And Lubomir Moravcik, the uh, veteran Slovakian, had the game of his life. And when the winning goal went in, the noise its the only time I've been in a ground where the noise actually, I had to take my headphones off because they popped, they cracked. The the, the noise went so, it was sort of a, it just suddenly started whistling. It went beyond crowd noise into this whistle and something broke in my headphones. It was that loud. Um, guy, we've we've
2: long held the view on this podcast that there is a discernible difference between the English or the Irish roar and this
0: guttural roar um in Scotland. I think you yeah, you you, you might have a point, yeah. Um I, I wonder if that's become over the years because of the way the Premier League is and the sort of mass tourism thing that it is. Yeah. You know, it's not it's not a Hundred percent partisan crowd these days, um, and any, they all don't any have ground. the
2: same accent.
0: Correct, correct. Yeah, there is something particularly good about a, a Scottish crowd, and I guess when you get Celtic and you mix the Scottish and the Irish into one pot, then uh, you don't half get one. And, and yeah, that that game at Celtic Park was was absolutely outstanding. The the, the roar will will always live with me. Um, and that's that's the thing about when we go back behind closed doors. Isn't that going to be really really strange? Just like an eerie silence, kind of accompanying these games. It's going to affect commentary as well. It's going to affect the commentary as well because we're not going to go nuts because the crowd is what gives you the heart and the passion. And you know, you do preseason games. We all call games that people like to watch, but you have a different sort of vibe. It's a little bit more relaxed. You have a cup of tea and a biscuit on the go while you're doing it. You know, it's it's going to be that sort of vibe because we can't. Even if it's a great goal we can't give it the full guns in commentary because it's going to sound weird. Players will be looking up to the gantry and going, what the hell's he doing? You know, yeah. We'll try yeah. our best, I'm sure, and we'll get used to it as, as the weeks go on, but it's not not going to be anywhere near the same. So it's just going to be an interesting experiment if it happens, and I've just got my fingers crossed and I'm touching wood and everything that as soon as possible it can.
1: Yeah, we hope so too. We hope to hear you back in action soon calling these games that we miss so much. We hope you stay safe. Guy, we thank you so much for your time. This was awesome. Thanks, Guy.
0: No, the same to you guys. All the best. Oh, Guy Mowbray, that
1: was awesome. Oh my I, goodness, I, was that fun.
2: I, I, that's one of my favorite interviews that we've done. Uh, Andrew, uh, when I told him I missed Match of the Day and the natural rhythms of being back home watching games and watching Match of a Day, Match of the Day on Saturday and Sunday nights on the BBC, I meant that with all my heart.
1: Uh-huh. It's, it's
2: just different class. It really is.
1: I feel like that is to you what like Chris Berman NFL primetime was to me growing up. Just like Sunday night, you watch the games or you watched your game and then you watched that to find out what happened in every other game. Like that was,
2: it was just a go to. Oh, it it, it just had these, like I said, natural rhythms of football watching life. And it's, by the way, it's the longest running football show in the world.
1: Longest running. That's incredible. By the way, don't you love that his go to moment for loudest roar of course it had to come from scottish lungs it's where else would it come from remember when we played the uh,
2: the lee griffith free kick yeah against england by what a game that was a sneakily underrated international game and i think after that podcast i replayed that free kick 10 or 12 times because it was just so just so amazing the hairs on the back of my neck stood up unbelievable whatever they drink up in Scotland it's it's something
1: yeah and it's funny too when he, when uh, i asked him about the luis suarez video it, like suarez has a category of incidents where if somebody just puts a tweet out saying you know i forgot how crazy he is like it can be any number of things i, I don't know if you saw this but i think it was the espn fc account they tweeted a video the other day yeah of suarez in the copa america last year going in on net <laughs> takes a shot it's blocked by the keeper by his arm, and Suarez turns to the official and appeals for a handball. Looks for it a was beneficial. the keeper. <laughs> he gets out there, and in that same game uh, against Chile in the in the Copa America group stage, uh, a fan ran on the field during that match, and Gonzalo Yara of Chile. Uh, The fan is like running around wreaking havoc essentially. And so Yara decides I'm going to put a stop to this and he trips the fan and Suarez runs to the ref to try to get Yara sent off. That's right. He is one of these guys. Like we talked about Clint Dempsey a couple weeks ago, how like the switch, they all talk about the switch, how it goes off with Dempsey and he's a different guy out on the field. Suarez is that on steroids. He's out of his mind. That's why you must read. And again, it's not, I'm, I'm
2: not just plugging an ESPN article. Wright Thompson, Louis Suarez, Google it. Wright Thompson goes into his background, his, the poverty background he came up in, uh, how he, his love for his wife, his his this like deep almost. It's beyond, I suppose all love in a way. Andrew is primal. There's a there's a primal drive, but this is like hunter gatherer must provide and protect for my family at all costs, and he takes that mentality onto the field. He is like never going back to what he came from and he will fight for his family. That's that's the way Wright-Thompson positions it. Now, that may not be true, but it's an amazing take on it. And it's the only way to explain such absolute
1: random acts of craziness on the field. I guess it's a very, it's a kind spin on his on-field behavior. I mean, no, it's, it's, how many people must he bite? I, I don't know.
2: I, Wait, honestly, honestly, I am the one who went on this podcast in 2014 in an inter- live during an interview with Dan Thomas and went to defend him. And
1: right immediately after the we were on the air when he bit Chiellini.
2: That's right, we were on the air we were on when
1: the he podcast and, and a producer came running into the room to say that Suarez just bit Chiellini. We and were, then, in and then real time. And then Dan bit me for trying to defend him. Uh, Let's see. Let's bite into this mailbag here. This is a good one. Oh, my God. It's just you are such a pro. Oh, such a pro. This is what you're taught in higher levels of institutions. Oh,
2: the segues, the links. CutOffSidePod at gmail.com is the email, Andrew. Uh, CutOffSideESPN on the Instagrams. Follow us. We got new followers. I always respond to DMs as well. It's interactive. And Twitter, at COSoccerPod, if you still go on Twitter. (laughs) Speaking, speaking of Twitter, this is the responses to games we could not watch again. So I've picked a few. Um, Alex Sanchez, Mexico versus the Netherlands, World Cup 2014 was brutal.
1: That would be horrifying for a Mexican fan to rewatch, to have to see the Robin penalty right. over and over.
2: Yeah, that's got to hurt. Now, Mexico featured twice in this list, and the second one is not hard to figure out. Um, Caesar he comes up with the U.S. men's national team versus Belgium, which I wanted to reject. But then I thought, if you focus in on the Wando miss, then it makes sense because really that game should have been six one Belgium.
1: I haven't gone back and rewatched the entire thing since, but I have rewatched the Julian Green goal multiple times. Right, uh, like there were some moments like that was you know the DeAndre Yedlin breakout game. There's still, cert- Belgium was so good, so you could, I don't know, I- I'm not sure I fully. There are there are worse U.S. losses for me uh than that i would think that when the u.s lost to ghana in 2010 i think that I mean would hurt more
2: i mean 2-1 taking
1: belgium to extra time is still admirable you I know? think the, the wando miss i think adds a layer of of hurt to it um so you just fast forward through the 87th minute or whenever it was that that when that happened the 88th minute uh what else you poor have? Old, poor
2: old wando um another entry for i'm never watching that again is from an this is from an arsenal fan on instagram Never watching the A2 defeat to Man United, ever. No. That was horrifying. Was that the one where Wenger was forced into the... He was sent off for kicking a bottle or... uh, He didn't know where to go, right? Yeah, Yeah. and he went up onto this little plinth (laughs) where he stood there surrounded by United fans taunting him. It was almost like one of those 1950s uh, renditions of a biblical passage where there's, you know, someone is taken into a crowd and they're just taunted. It was, it was awful, awful. Um, that was probably his most embarrassing moment, I would think as well. Uh, Tottenham makes me cry, indeed it does. Uh, there is a mark in the record book of a Newcastle five one Spurs match that I <laughs> that,
1: that I believe never happened. So. so this this happened at the end, the final game of the 2015-2016 season. And it's just amazing that. Uh, one of the great—I mean, really—it's one of the great Tottenham seasons in recent history. And yet, the way it ended, it cast such a negative light over the entire season that it's almost hard—it's almost hard to look back on that year fondly. Like they were rolling, and then you had the awful one-one draw to West Brom. After that was the battle at the bridge which essentially ended their season but you were still playing to finish ahead of Arsenal. Then they lose to Southampton and then an already relegated Newcastle. Tottenham just have to beat them on the final day to finish ahead of Arsenal and they get absolutely blown out of the out of the place 5-1. That was that was really really bad. Really really. That's a good call by him. Yeah. Uh,
2: Eddie Sanchez, the 2018 Copa Libertadores second leg in Madrid. Losing that final to them is something I don't want to relive. Hashtag Baca juniors forever.
1: I love that he says them. He won't even refer to them by name. I would
2: would doubt Eddie Sanchez has ever said, ever said River Plate without then spitting. I would very much doubt that. Um, Eduardo. Eduardo. (laughs) Well, this is the one I referenced earlier. Chile 7, Mexico nil. Copa America Centenario. Yeah. Uh, can I can I tell you something funny? Actually, not that funny, but I found it funny. I watched the first half at home and I couldn't believe, I think most of the goals were scored in the second half. I'm not sure. Maybe I was already in the Colombian restaurant. Anyway, I'm in a Colombian restaurant and the waiters have the game on and I can't believe what I'm seeing. I, I just can't because I genu- I genuinely didn't think Chile were that much superior to Mexico, but but there we were. <laughs> and some of the waiters were like grabbing their sides, falling around laughing. So, <laughs> so I presume they were the Colombian waiters. And there was other guys who were, I guess were Mexican kids, were absolutely like crestfallen. And and they were kind of shouting as if making the the kind of the gesture to have it turned off, which incredible. It was horrifying that game. And the final one <laughs> One guy tweeted us that his game he couldn't watch again was an NYCFC 1-1 draw with Red Bulls in the Derby. And the reason he was upset was because Red Bulls had lost, had two men sent off, and NYCFC still couldn't win. I was like, okay. I suggested that might not meet the criteria because in a Derby, surely you, you draw or you win. The most important thing is you don't lose. Yeah. That, that would be my criteria for a Derby. Not only Andrew, did he delete his suggestion? He then deleted
1: his account. Oh my God. You ran him right off social media. <laughs> Holy crap. Yeah. Unbelievable. That's sad. That is All, right. Really sad.
2: All right. Let's move on from this frippery. Um, Shad Larson. This is unbelievable. This is, uh, this is a bit out there actually. Um, JJ and Andrew, thanks so much for continuing the podcast through all of these rough times. It's been really nice to get soccer-related material every week. You're very welcome. Uh, I thought I'd share some good news with you that is somewhat soccer-related. Well, I would go as far as to say, Shad, it's very soccer-related, and you made it that way. My wife had a baby boy last week, and ex- and in exchange for me agreeing to buy her two cats. What is this, a fairy tale? I will saw you a child if you give me cats. I was able to name him after my favorite soccer club Everton attached is a picture of baby Everton Hunter Larson with his Everton beanie on hope this lifts you guys up a little, even though you're a Liverpool fan JJ, thanks again for the pod and stay safe. Look,
1: i wife is a saint.
2: What America. a saint. What an amazing woman. Uh, Shad, I just want to say that that is your kid, the picture of your kid. My God. So, so gorgeous. Absolutely beautiful. Um, and I think it's really cool. I just can't believe your wife allowed it. Cannot believe it. And by the way, because your last name is Scandinavian somewhat, if you say his name quickly, he sounds like a mid 90s footballer who played centre back for Norwich. Everton Hunter Larson. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Everton. Yeah. I'm trying to think of how many clubs this could work for. Like Everton, look, Everton by no means is a. Common name, but it it could it could work as a name. Like Liverpool is not a name. Tottenham is not really a a name. Like I'm trying to think of how many clubs you could actually name your child after directly. Well, I do think that location. I guess could. uh I I feel I feel I'm sure other
2: people did it before him, but I do feel like location naming started with David Beckham calling one of his kids Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Um. I know for a fact that it's very common. You'll have low... when Gerard was at his pomp for Liverpool. You had plenty of Stevies in the Merseyside region, but to call them after the name of the club is wow. Yeah, that's it's something. bold. It's very bold. Very bold. What else? Uh, Brandon from New Jersey, a place very close to my heart. As this month marked my five-year anniversary of finishing business school, I was looking through some old work and found my proposal to be a Fulbright Scholar in the United Kingdom. My final proposal focused on the differences in fandom and support among professional sports in the United States and the United Kingdom. At the time, and still am today, I was fascinated that football clubs had supporters, but American professional teams had fans. Football clubs were steeped in traditions such as songs, rituals, and alike. I was curious as to why that never transferred over to major American professional sports, NBA, NHL, MLB, NFL. Rather, college sports are more similar in the supporter culture to that of football clubs. Alma matters are sung, students have specific traditions and rituals, and the importance of traveling fans that are located in specific parts of the arena. As two people who have come to sports in different ways, um, Andrew with his UK football club, JJ adopting American sports culture, why do you think supporter culture is so different than fan culture? Why have American professional sports, with the exception of soccer, not caught on to major supporter traditions?
1: Uh, so I have a, a great question. It is a great question. I have a theory on this that I I assume that he's talking about in-stadium atmosphere um, because uh, outside of that, I actually do think that fan culture is not all that different in the way people follow their teams religiously. I think he's talking about in-stadium atmosphere. At least that's how I'm going to read into it. And I think much of that, um, I'm envious of what we see in terms of in-stadium atmosphere in England as opposed to what we see here. Not to say that games are, are dull here, but it's a different level of atmosphere at a Premier League or, or a lot of European soccer matches. Um, and I think a lot of that is driven by the away section because I think when you are on you know, somebody else's territory, surrounded by your people, you feel this intense pride. Uh, and so you're going to be loud and you're going to show that pride. And then that is then met with the home crowd. Well, we can't be outdone in our own building by the visiting team's fans. So then they have to then meet that with their own enthusiasm, and I think it just creates that feel throughout a match. And I I, I understand why there aren't away sections in American sports. Like teams don't play close enough to each other where you could have that game in game out. Uh, it's a it's a cool element of sports in England, um, but it's a shame because I really think that would that would go a long way in creating a similar atmosphere i
2: think part of it is to do with the amount of games um i think the nba and mlb seasons have a stultifying effect on supporter culture it is just not possible to go to every game you can't go home and away whereas there's a home and away culture in english football where the hardcore supporters travel and they they go to the home games as well um, I think distance makes a difference. I also think there are younger teams in uh, American sports, whereas most teams in uh, almost all teams in the top flights or certainly in the football league all go back 100 years. Yeah. So there's, so there's this generational pass on, which you, which you have in college. You have that in college sports. There are kids who've never gone to Penn state whose parents had an affiliation to Penn state and they, they go on and they support them. There's a depth there. There's also, I think as well, uh, Brandon, um, and I'd love to go into more depth on this. Maybe I'll get a chance at some time. I think there's a, there's a, a real, uh, understanding in the American football or sorry, the American sports fan that they are consumers, that they are customers. Um, you, you'll you hear American fans just talk about franchise and organization. It just trips off the tongue. It's a transactional relationship in some cases. And I think if you look at, in the case of the New York Yankees, if the New York Yankees next season did not win X amount of games or fell, were not in the playoffs, their attendances would absolutely plummet. There would be no atmosphere in the stadiums. Um, you you wouldn't have that at Leeds United. Leeds United, when they were in the third division of English football, were bringing 7,000 people to Exeter at an away game. You know, there is a depth of connection there that the fans are the club and the club are the fans. And I really don't feel that is... I, I, I think it varies. It varies. I think there are exceptions. I think the Boston Celtics... In in basketball, I think uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers and the and uh, the Green Bay Packers are those exceptions. But again, look how long they've been going. I think the New York Giants, to an extent, but not exactly, mm. not exact. Yeah, mm is right. You want to see how many empty seats when they when they have a yeah. sucky season towards the end? Um, I do think there's a a fiscal, a fiscal and transactional nature to sports in the United States that that fans subconsciously are very much aware of.
1: Yeah, uh, that all factors in. Also, to the way – just the format of an American sports season. Our seasons end in playoffs. So, like, let's be honest. The playoffs, you'll get that kind of atmosphere. But if you're talking about, like, a mid-July Braves-Pirates, oh. like, there's just some games that are just hard. Like, you just know this game doesn't really matter.
2: Yeah, like, and, 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 and Andrew, I think that eff- I think that affects in-stadium support. Also, one other thing, with the exception of the NHL – The NHL is pretty close to soccer support in some cities. It really is. Yeah, Montreal, definitely. Yeah, for sure. Um, But I will say this about the NFL, and I will say this about the NBA as well to an extent, and particularly baseball. It's impossible to get an atmosphere going if it's a stop-start as that. Like, it's nigh on impossible. You see a bit of excitement. You're pumped when um, the offensive tackle makes this amazing play, and you're pumped and you're on your feet. And then there's this absolute, just long break before anything else happens, and and that really in, in football when the fullback smashes into the winger for a tackle, that's the first of a continuous line of things that will happen.
1: Yes, um, when you say football, there at the end, you're talking wait, you're talking American football or soccer.
2: When 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 the fullback smashes into the winger, okay. I'm talking that uh, I'm talking soccer.
1: All right. Now I don't, I don't mean to be like Joe America here, Amer- my American brain defending American sports, but let's not act like soccer doesn't have its fair share of lulls in the act. Oh my God. A- absolutely. But
2: there are things continuously happening. All right. point. And, so, and so you can sing through those things. You'd look really, you know, I mean, in, in the NFL, we are compelled to sing things or not the NFL, the, the MLB. We're compelled to saying things because there's a person on an organ there. They're well aware this is a deathly boring sport at times. <laughs> you know? Uh, let's see. What else do you have? Uh, Liz in Sao Paulo finishes up, Andrew. Um, this is really great. I love this. And it, it, it kind of speaks to the, the soul of the nation, if you will. I thought you might find it interesting to hear a nugget about Brazilian soccer on TV during quarantine. Of course, sports channels have been replaying old games since all sports were suspended. But one of the major channels has been showing historic games every Sunday afternoon when Brazilian or state league games usually happen. So today they aired the original broadcast of the 94 World Cup final and had Romario and Bebeto calling in throughout the game to discuss it. Right before the penalties, they showed video messages from both the Brazilian and Italian keepers about their memories of the game. When Brazil won their Tetra, which is third world championship with Baggio's air ball. I heard cheering horns and fireworks out my window in Sao Paulo like I would normally hear when a big game is on. It's been a nice way to keep soccer alive and remember some great historic moments in the country's soccer history.
1: That's now, pretty cool.
2: That's awesome that people still celebrate something they know has happened like 25 odd years ago. I would say Liz, they needed Bebeto and Romario to call in for that game. What a stinker. Oh my god. If ever a World Cup final stank the place up, that was it. Yeah. It was so bad that during the game, Jean-Luc fell asleep and on an easy basket, bread basket catch, it hit his his arm, his upper arm and hit off the post and came
1: back to him. If if people remember that game, it stank. Oh, awful. That has gone on here too, though, with because uh, there's been a ton of games being rebroadcast. Like I saw, um, they on CBS Sports Network they replayed the Syracuse Kansas national championship game, and on they did a Facebook Live of a bunch of Syracuse figures from that game. Carmelo, uh, as you refer to him, Coach Old Man Jim Beheim was there. The whole team checked in and and commented on like all the behind the scenes of stuff from that game. So I've seen a lot of that, which is look, we all have this fix that we just like need to get from somewhere. So we're getting it right now through the last dance documentary and rewatching old games. I got sucked in last night, JJ, just go on YouTube and just type in great sports moments. And like so many incredible, like professionally done montages of just like normal guys who just like are bored and want to make these videos. There's some great stuff. And I was watching, it was 26 minutes long. And uh, I got to the end. I was like, Damn, I like I really miss sports right now. Um look, I I By the way, you. I'll cut you off real quick. There was only I think one soccer moment in the whole montage. You know what it was? Mm-hmm. Watford lester Almunia saves the penalty, Deni scores at the other end. Our the one thing me and you will never argue about. Yeah. The one of the greatest
2: passages of play we have ever seen. I'm still in awe of it every single time I see it. I might watch that back later. And yeah. um, by the way, just before we get out, um the last dance. So I find Rodman, Pippin, Jerry Krause, Phil Jackson, all these people, absolutely compelling and much more compelling than the main protagonist. No, but the main protagonist is so utterly compelling from his ability to play. But you're wrong. But what? No, 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 no. And, and, uh, the reason Jordan might be compelling, the crossover between him and Roy Keane is unbelievable. They cannot understand people who are not as talented A or as B driven as them.
1: Okay. They can't get into their heads. But like, I thought, you're not suggesting, though, that like the Jordan interviews aren't compelling. That, no, like when he's talking about the hate that he still feels today for Isaiah Thomas. And the no, but,
2: yeah, that is com- yeah, but that's compelling in the same way Roy Keane is compelling. He has the same hate. Roy Keane still, right now, has the burning fires that Jordan still has. But it's why they could never be coaches that are, and, and have failed as coaches in, in terms of Roy Keane. Because they can't they, relate to the common player. They cannot relate to the common player. But by the way, before people start chiming in, Jordan was a more skillful player than Roy Keane was a skillful soccer player. But Roy Keane and Jordan, to quote from the last dance, did their jobs better than anybody in sports, any employee has ever done their jobs. That's a fact. Yeah. And when I, when I hear Michael Jordan talk, I'm like, Keane and Jordan are cut from the same stone. They couldn't possibly understand mediocrity. They couldn't understand... Players who didn't want it as
1: much as them. Like they they couldn't understand failure. Yeah. Much like myself, which was why this podcast is just grueling week in, week out for me. <sighs> yeah, that's a reference to you. You you make it hard and like don't and nobody's buying that anymore. Don't you love this is the highlight of your week, and don't even lie about it. It's a low bar, but yes, that is in fact true. These weeks are tough, man.
2: Can can I say the final thing I'll say before we get out? I I was going to bed the other night and I was kind of feeling a bit sad because the next day was going to be a bit like the day that had just passed. (laughs) And I thought about when we went into the studio to preview the World Cup final and we had um, uh, James Montague on from Zagreb.
1: Mm, I remember that interview.
2: To talk about Croatia and the country. And we just did this brilliant World Cup preview. I'm so proud of that. And then me and you got out, and we went for a burger and a beer. And all probably through that period, I'm thinking, how can we make the podcast better? How can we drive things on? And now I reflect on that time. How good was life? How amazing was that? What a fun! That was a fun day. I remember that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, these things, these these thoughts have been sustaining me.
1: Yeah. Oh, there will be good days again. Trust me. There will be good days again. I just know it.
2: I'm I'm sorry, Andrew, but you are not a man that can deliver a line like that and deliver hope.
1: Oh, then you say it. There will be good days.
2: There will be good
1: days again. Oh, this was fun. This was a good day. I enjoyed this. Uh, I enjoyed Guy Mowbray. He was great to talk to. Our thanks to him. He gave us a lot of time there. That was really, really fun. Hey, we'll do this again next week. To you, I say. Check you later, fun boy. See ya. Take care. Soccer Podcast.